Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Spring Encounter. We are uh, doing a new series uh, starting uh, tonight on the kings of Israel and Judah. And uh, I, to be honest with you, can't remember exactly why we did this, although our last series was on uh, the kingdom of God. And so I know we spent a lot of time talking about that. So that might have been part of it. It also, uh, we try to alternate between Old Testament and New Testament, Old Testament and New Testament. And a lot of what we learned about last uh, semester had to do with the kingdom of God, and so there was a little bit in the Old Testament, but we focused a lot on the teachings of Jesus Christ and understanding how the kingdom fit into that. And so, um, Ryan, anything else we want to add in terms of why we're doing this? We love history. People of history. Okay. And you already have a textbook. So we are going to be going through uh, the kings of Judah and Israel. And uh, one of the things that I want to make sure that we don't do, because this is where we can get into trouble. And uh, uh, as, as, for those of you that know me, uh, no, I, 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 do, I really don't enjoy being a stickler for no reason. Uh, I can, I can, if someone would say, man, Jim, you're, you're really, you can be guilty of majoring in the minors or making too much out of a small detail. I, I totally get why someone might say that. I really do. Man, that repentance thing, you say we always have to do it. Are you a stickler about that? Well, actually I am. I am a stickler about that, but it's not just because I like that doctrine over a whole bunch of others. I just recognize biblically how core it is to what it means to be a follower of God. So I'm a stickler on it. Um, This I'm a little bit of a stickler on as well, and you'll see here why in a moment. There is a temptation with preachers and teachers to so desire that we have some kind of practical application that when we study the Bible, particularly the stories of the Old Testament, what we attempt to do, and this happens in the New Testament as well, what we attempt to do is moralize them or principalize them. So what's the moral of the story, right? You've probably heard me preach about this which I'm not saying is wrong, but it's not the first approach that we should take to understand the biblical text. So is there a moral story attached to, let's just say every story that's found in the Bible? Sure, I could find one or I could even make one up when necessary because these are biblical truths that happen in real time from a very real God and there are humans just like you and I that are trying to figure out what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to live in this world? What does it mean to follow God? And so there are mistakes and there are uh, successes, there are failures, there are victories and we could look at everybody in the Bible and say, wow, we really could learn a lesson about that, right? How many of you have heard the sermon on integrity from the life of Joseph? right? Courage from the life of Daniel or David, right? You've heard this. You've heard this. That's not wrong, but it's really not. This might surprise some of you, but it's really not the primary purpose of why it's in the Bible. And here's some good news for you. Like in our children's area, from the wee ones all the way up, sure, there will be principles that they will apply to your children's lives or your grandchildren's lives. But for for our understanding of what it means to be a follower of God, it's not just the moral of the story that really can inspire us. For example, this Sunday, I will be preaching from the temptation of Jesus. Okay? And if I can just give you a... Because as you know, I love you what? The most, right? Those that come Wednesday night are my favorite believers in all of the world. Because uh, you're committed. You're committed. The Wednesday night people are the most committed. So let me give you a little bit of a snippet on this. So when I would preach, I'm not doing it this weekend. 
When I preach on the temptation of Jesus Christ, how many of you have, kind of, and look at the example that Jesus gives us. What a great example. When you're tempted, use scripture. What a wonderful example. That's what Jesus did. Satan comes to him. He tempts him. And what does Jesus do to combat this temptation? He recites scripture. And therefore, just like Jesus in his temptation recited scripture, that when you are faced with temptation, you should recite scripture as well. That's true. I'm not arguing the the validity of that statement, but let me tell you this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John doesn't record the temptation. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are not giving us the temptation of Jesus as an example for us, okay? It's not, hey, guess what? Jesus really knew how to do some pretty amazing things, and you need the right kind of inspiration, and so look at what he does, and then you follow suit. Now, that's not a bad thing to add down the road, but the primary reason why Matthew, Mark, and Luke record the temptation of Jesus is to prove to his, their audiences, now us, that Jesus Christ was in fact the Messiah and did in fact not give in to temptation and lived a sinless life, okay? That is the difference, So what I hang on to when I really need to hang on to Jesus um, is not how can I overcome, here's what I've done. I mean, this might surprise some of you. I have overcome temptation in my life, I have. There have been things that I've been tempted with, I've focused on scripture, and I've overcome. (sighs) I feel so good. And then God says, and you still need Jesus. I still need Jesus? Yes. Do Do you have another example for me, God? No, like Jesus isn't just an example, okay? There is something that is far more foundational that is happening. Do you see where I'm coming from on this? So when we study the story of the kings, boy, we shouldn't be like him. Boy, we really should be like him, and we shouldn't be like him, and we should be more like him. Sure. I mean, honestly, yeah, I get it. Be like David, don't be like Saul, Anything else? Yes. How is God bringing together through his history, particularly Israel, the Messiah? That's what's happening here. How is God being faithful to his covenant? That's what's happening here. Because in the moments when I need God the most, that nothing else in this world can explain when I have to, should this ever happen? And by the way, I don't believe in jinxing, so let's not go crazy on me here. Um, But should I ever have to bury a child? Should I ever have to say goodbye to my wife long, long, or sooner than I ever dreamed? I need something bigger than an example. Well, Jesus wept. Good. I'm glad Jesus wept when Lazarus died. But I just want to know, who is the resurrection and the life? You see the difference? There is a wonderful example. There's going to be, I'm going to draw in, hey, notice this and notice this. We should be like this. Don't be like this. Sure. But there is an undercurrent throughout all of this that God is king, that God is sovereign, that God is working through his people. And what I have loved in the brief study that I've already had a week or so into this is the fact that through all of their failures, God still won. Think about that. I meet people, I I did even recently, I met somebody that really wanted to get hung up on the law and how important the law is. And we just need to follow the law and we need to follow it more and we need to follow it better. Very passionate, very excited, was following much of the Jewish rituals. And I had to point out to him, as you look at history, 
Do you realize like the, ma- the law comes in thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years after God made the world? At least thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And, and then by the way, like Israel never really followed it. And then Jesus says, and this is where we get into some interesting, but Jesus says, I have fulfilled it because it really wasn't the point anyway. Is the law a big deal? Yes, huge. Paul calls it holy and good and says it's wonderful. But do you realize that when it stands in the absolute, the theater where God is center stage, the law, yeah, take a back seat. Jesus is about to speak. Do you see the difference? So that is kind of where we want to draw off of. So we're going to be looking at Saul. Um, I'm going to call him the first king, even though uh, you might want to say, well, wait a second, isn't there? Uh, And it depends on how you count it. Melchizedek is actually referred to as a king. Abimelech is referred to as a king. Um, uh, Gideon uh, refers to himself as a king in a very kind of an underhanded, uh, weird way, which is kind of interesting as well. So We really don't count all of those as kings. Saul is the first one uh, kind of technically considered to be the anointed king of Israel. And so why do we study these things? I kind of shared a big picture item. Let me give you a few more. The first one is this, that the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, all of those are together, by the way. If you're looking in your Bible, from 1st 1 and 2 Samuel to 1 and 2 Kings to 1 and 2 Chronicles, those all fit together, and there actually is some overlap in them. Okay, there is some overlap in them. And those books are actually considered canon or scripture. So that's why I think this has value. So even though majority of the time, without any apologies, love to focus on Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel, that's a huge desire for me. I also recognize we need to go back and take a look at some of these things. So it is good for us to know the whole counsel of God's word. And so we're spending some time in the Old Testament. Number two, that the kingdom... And by that, I don't mean the kingdom of God, capital K kingdom, but more of the smaller K, although it really has a big K feel to it. The kingdom of Israel and the kingly rulers of uh, Israel, that that period of time stands very, uh, kind of an important part. You have in the Bible, the patriarchs, so the fathers of the faith, um, uh, you could go back and talk about Adam and Noah and then Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and his brothers and, and all of them. And then you have on the heels of the patriarchs so the book of Genesis, you have the Exodus and the Exodus material. There's 400 years in between these two. And then after the Exodus, you have the wandering and now Israel's about to find a land. So in between that time period and then what is known as the exile that time when Israel is actually taken into captivity because of their rebellion, and then there is a period of restoration that actually happens with Ezra and Nehemiah and Malachi and a number of the prophets. So between that and that actually stands the period of the kings. The period of the kings. And this period is, a, is, is pretty important. The exodus happens, just how many of you like timelines? Timelines are really helpful, kind of just helps me see where we are. 1444 BC is when the law is given at Mount Sinai. 1444 to 1446 BC is when we consider that to be that time period. Um, Then you have about 40 years of wanderings, okay? And remember, we're counting down. So 40 years of wanderings. um, And then you've got the period of Joshua and the conquest and then the period of uh, of the judges, 
And then on the heels of the judges, you basically have um, the establishment. This is kind of where we're jumping in tonight. The establishment of kings. So in my mind, I always put David at about 1,000 B.C., Okay, Abraham, by the way, and that's just good to go back and memorize these. Abraham is 2,000. Okay, so think about that. I always remind people. Where we stand in relation to Jesus is the same distance as Jesus to Abraham. And David stands in the middle. And roughly, um, St. Thomas Aquinas would stand between us and Jesus halfway. So the same distance between us and Aquinas is roughly the same, or Anselm, is the same distance between uh, David to Abraham and then David to Jesus. So think about the distance, the years that kind of span, um, uh, that, that spend that time. And so I think it's good for us to uh, be aware of like, how is this all fitting together? Um, and the kings uh, kind of link these ideas together, okay? This is this time in Israel's history where they desire, we want to be ruled not by God, but by um, by manly kings, by, by human kings. Um, also, kind of the, the big key that we actually see during this time period, and we'll talk about it here more in a second, is the fact that God reveals himself in all of these periods as a covenantal God, which means this, that God has relationship with expectations. And I cannot emphasize this enough, that how much this idea of a covenantal God stands opposed um, stands better than, greater than, uh, different than the cultures that existed around Israel. Um, if you think about it, a covenantal God basically says, we have an agreement with one another. So with Adam, we have an agreement. With Noah, we have an agreement. With Moses and the children of Israel, we have an agreement, the Mosaic law. Um, with, uh, so, and I don't know if I said Abraham. With Abraham, he has an agreement. Uh, with David, he's going to have an agreement. And therefore, we do not worship a God that we have to try to guess or figure out. Okay? The nations around Israel had to guess, for the most part, how their gods are going to act. Therefore, they have a system of sacrifices or a system of trying to interpret the signs of the times, which literally makes God appear more like David Copperfield than the creator of the universe. It's more magic, and it's more trying to get, I mean, you can, this is where superstitions come into play. Hey, we acted good, and then it rained, so we need to act good, Right? We actually did right type things and we went to the market and the market like, was good for us and we made extra money. So whatever we did to cause that, we really need to, to keep doing that. And that's how the rest of the nations had to try to act with their, with their gods. Whereas Yahweh God, the God of the Bible, speaks and gives his expectations. This is who I am, this is what I'm about. This is what our relationship is essentially going to look like. So realize how important that is, and we're going to see this time period, definitely the, um, uh, the context is going to be in response to the Mosaic law that God gave at Mount Sinai. Lastly, there are very critical positions and practices and places that shape the faith of our ancestors and therefore are shaped too, or are shape us in our faith as well. First of all, you have the priest. And the priest would be the one that was in charge of the, and, and this doesn't mean cult in a bad way, but the cultic practice that is going on in Israel. So the priest is the one that would be associated with the temple. 
And the priest would be the one that would be associated with how to worship. The priest would be, in essence, um, the, the one who stands in between the people and God. So there is a high priest, and then there are a, uh, there's an entire clan of priests, and they are, in fact, Levites, and they function not like prophets, although they may speak God's truth, but more of a, like emissaries or people that will, uh, will stand and assist the people through their ritualistic practices of worship. Okay, so that's what the priests do. And they have a, a specific, I guess, a genealogy. They come from the tribe of Levi. Next, you have the prophet. And the prophet appears, and you'll see this, the prophets appear in the Bible as reformers or as covenantal reminders. So you don't really have prophets in Genesis. You have patriarchs. And you don't really have, although Moses can sound like one, but really um, he's, he's not as prophetic as we might think as say like Isaiah or Jeremiah, okay? The prophets are the one that come and are the mouthpieces of God. And, and by the way, their primary emphasis is not to focus on or to talk about the future, right? We usually think of it in that context, but that is a very limited understanding of what prophecy is. Prophecy is a call to repentance by reminding the people this is what you were supposed to be. So if Andrea and I in our marriage had a prophet to come, the prophet would come and probably say to her all the time, great job, you're doing great, and then say, by the way, Jim, let me remind you of this covenant that you made to her. Let me remind you of what you swore in front of others and what God is going to hold you to, right? So that would be like a marriage covenant reminder, which might not be a bad thing for some of us, okay? But basically, since God has given this covenant to the people and said, if you want to live long in the land, then you will obey my covenant. As they rebelled, who's going to hold them accountable? Kind of growing up, I thought it was the priest's job. Kind of, you know, because that's what preachers do. No, like modern day Preachers function more like prophets, and again, lose the future telling stuff. They function more as prophets, covenant reminders, than they actually do like priests in certain aspects. And maybe that's because how we understand ourselves um, in our uh, post-Reformation time period is we see ourselves um, as Jesus as our priest, Jesus as the one who uh, intercedes on our behalf, and then therefore those of us as prophets really aren't the ones uh, interceding for but we are actually the ones kind of reminding of the covenant. So that is what a prophet does. Um, prophets, in a sense, are the ones who come along and hold everybody accountable. Think about why this is going to matter. We're gonna be dealing with kings and who, who can walk into a king's room and let him have it? And the answer is the prophet. The prophet is the one who walks in and says, hey, by the way, like, I know I don't have as much money as you. I know I don't have as much fame as you. I know I don't have a huge army. But the living God has told me to come and tell you. So who causes David, quote unquote, to tremble? It's Nathan. Nathan walks in. Hey, you are the man. Yeah, well, who are you? I'm Nathan the prophet sent from Yahweh. Oh, that changes everything, right? Kings should We'll see when times when they don't. Kings bow to prophets because they are the emissaries from the throne of the Almighty. Um, the next one that you have here that you probably should know about are the judges. And the judges are people that are raised up by God 
to take care of a, they're empowered to take care usually of a very specific task, a, a specific oppression that is happening in the life of Israel. Um, we need someone to come in and to help us from that terrible city of Perry because they're raiding our farms on the north side of, of Stillwater. And who is going to come and rescue us? We don't have anyone. The mayor is cowering downtown. And who is going to be the one? And God, this is what I love about the period of the judges. God would just raise up like, people in weird circumstances and he would just say you're going to go and you're going to fight and when we think of these judges one of the things that I get kind of in trouble with is going back to when I was a kid and they're teaching me about these judges um, I kind of thought they were all like really great people (laughs) and then kind of when I read the grown-up version of judges and not the children's version of it I realized they're really messed up people you know, like Samson says, hey, there's this really beautiful prostitute, mom, and I would like for you to get for me. And he's one of the judges that the Lord raised up. I, again, I don't know if we share that in our children's area. But that's the complex. I mean, our judges are very, even Gideon, who I kind of grew up adoring, like he was this wonderful person. The more I began to study him, I thought, oh, this guy's got like a really messed up streak in him. Like, he really is very troubled. You go back and look at the text. He's far more troubled than you realize. One of the judges sacrifices his daughter to God. Really? See, now do you recognize one of the problems with teaching and the moral of the story is by these wonderful people? No, the moral of the story is God is good and everyone else needs God. Right, That's the biggest moral that we need to hold on to. So the judges, though, are raised up by God for a specific purpose and recognize that judges at times can almost appear like kings. Gideon and his son kind of get into a little bit of trouble along this line, um, but judges are not to, to be kings, actually. They're not to be kings. And then you have the king, and the king is the one who is um, uh, supposed to be uh, appointed by God, And he is the one who is supposed to never trust in money and to not make lots of it. We'll go into a little bit of that tonight. He is supposed to not have like a standing army that he will rely on. He is to not, this is a major rule, he is to not make um, alliances by getting married and by marrying off his children to other kings. You do not do that. And, and we would think, yeah, that's right, because one man and one woman, and that's all, okay, sure, th- true. But really what's kind of at the very, read Isaiah. I love the book of Isaiah. One of the biggest things that Isaiah hits on is like, how are you going to, or who are you going to rely on as these other nations are kind of rising up around you? Who are you going to rely on? And the answer for many of the kings is my own political savvy. That's what I'm going to rely on. And I'm going to take my son and I'm going to trade it and get a couple of daughters. And me and the Egyptians are going to kind of create this alliance and this treaty. And we are going to, by our own power and by our own strength with our own armies, we are going to keep the Babylonians at bay. And God said, really? And so therefore God was very much against that kind of trading and allegiances. And kings are told, do not do that. Primary issue, you will, you, will, you will be deceived into believing that you have a sense of security that doesn't include or need God. I plan to do this a lot over the next 11 months, 10 months. I get it. Like, I get the complexity of the world today, I promise you. But it's probably been more complicated and more complex in the past, okay? And I get that there's lots of, well, do you realize who's going to be? I get it, okay? 
I so pray that we as a church, and that more than that, that the church doesn't panic or show signs of great fear or even great concern. And it's not because it doesn't matter, but I tell you this, it really doesn't matter in light of him. And, I, and we need to keep that context in our own minds so we don't sound like everyone else who's kind of running around all freaking out. That's not the example that we should give. And so I, I think it'll be kind of neat. We're in the, in the kings, period of the kings, we're going to see some pretty messed up people and God wasn't in heaven going, I have no idea what I'm gonna do. I'm so scared, right? Do you think God's scared right now? Think he's confused? Yeah, he's, he's fine, he's fine. And, I, and therefore, I'm fine, I really am. And then I start to worry and I go, okay, he's fine, he's fine. Next, the concept of covenant, which would be an agreement that God has with an individual. Particularly what we're gonna be dealing with in this entire section is going to be these two primary covenants. One is the covenant to the people of Israel through the Mosaic law which is this, if you keep my law, then you will stay in the land, that's the promise. If you keep my law and my statutes and you walk in them, which doesn't mean that they never sin, but they stay obedient to him and responsive to him in repentance, then you will stay long in the land, okay? The other one that goes alongside of this that we're going to see is the covenant that he makes with David. That because of you and your heart for me, I will always have um, a descendant of yours on the throne. Okay? And then the thing that is undergirding all of that but stands outside of it but really is what's pushing everything towards Jesus Christ is his promise to Father Abraham. Okay? Uh, the promise to Father Abraham is kind of that third covenant that's kind of underlying it. But the Mosaic covenant given at Mount Sinai and the covenant to King David are, are two of the major covenants that you're going to see uh, predominantly through this. Next you have the temple. Um, the temple, obviously, is this incredible structure, structure that is built by the third king, King Solomon, um, and it is a replacement of the tabernacle, which is the tent of meeting that was actually developed during the Exodus, okay? So the temple is going to come into play, but everybody who says, wow, the temple's so important, I love to remind people, the temple existed um, from the time of Solomon till the time of his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson, and then it was destroyed in a couple of hundred years it didn't exist and then it was back up for a little while and then it was destroyed again and it hasn't existed since and uh, God's fine. So the temple has a place in history but I even meet a lot of Christians that so, oh, I hope they rebuild a temple and like, why? You do remember we have Jesus. Read Hebrews. He's the greatest thing we could ever possibly have. But the temple is going to be this center for worship. And when we get into Solomon, you're going to see how valuable it is um, and how much the people love to trade. You know, we talked about how I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my daughter away to this other king and get some other son so that we can have an, an, an alliance together. And another thing is, is that as long as we have a church building, then maybe nothing bad can happen to us. Right? That's kind of their mentality. Maybe if we just have the temple, right? Then maybe God will kind of owe us. And I love how God consistently lets them know there's nothing in this world that will ever replace your obedience to me. And one of my favorite stories is the story kind of stands outside of this is when they think, hey, we're gonna take the Ark of the Covenant with us, kind of like the first Indiana Jones thing. 
first Indiana Jones experiment. We're going to take the Ark of the Covenant with us. And then, and, and by the way, the Philistines freak out. Oh no, their gods are coming before them. And God goes, really? You think it's the Ark of the Covenant that's, that I'm about? You can have it. And he lets them have it. Why? Because it's not about the Ark of the Covenant. Same thing with the temple. It's not about the temple. Therefore, don't make it about the temple. Tabernacle, as I already said, is the tent that was built by Moses during the wanderings. And it was essentially a tent that could be collapsed and moved and to follow them in. Um, It will exist all the way up until King David. And King David says, oh, I have this beautiful place. I wish God had a place. And that's kind of how the temple comes to be. Okay, but before that time period for Saul and for David, what you really have is a tabernacle that is actually existing in in Jerusalem. There is no temple. And then the last thing that I think you just need to know about is the issue of idolatry, idolatry. Um, and, 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 and by the way, I'm going to use that when we, when we talk about this, we, we can say, hey guys, listen, let me take a step to the side here and talk about the idols of our hearts. Um, that you and I um, have idols and we have things that matter a lot to us and they distract us from the living God. And so here's where this idolatry thing. Um, but it's good to realize like this is what idols were. <laughs> this is how idols really, really mattered to them. And these idols were in fact like representatives of the beings that existed in the universe and they were like a conduit. They were a conduit. They were um, a means by which they could, and, and this is a big idea that happens in both idolatry and in pagan worship, that we can then exert our control over the great beings of the universe. So we have these idols, and these idols become, in essence, like representatives of the greater being. They didn't think that this idol was in fact the being, but it represents the being. And so God says in the 10 commandments first given in Exodus chapter 20 that you're not going to do that. Why? Because I don't resemble anything. And you're never going to take your hand and make something and and say that that's me, that that's my image, that's who I am. And the first time they actually do it is the is the calf in Exodus 32. When they take a calf and they name it Yahweh, And they think, hey, they didn't think the calf was in fact Yahweh, but we are now going to worship our God, which exists up there, through this means. And God says, don't do that. Don't take anything, don't make anything, and think that it is the pathway to me. Why do they do that? Because, to my estimation, um, and I'm probably borrowing a lot of this from people much smarter than me, but there is a desire for us to control the circumstances around us. How, if I'm a farmer, how do I get my crops to grow? If I'm a businessman, how do I get my, uh, my products to sell? If I'm, a, if I'm a governor, how do I keep peace? And how do I, there's gotta be something that is actually going on here. Therefore, how do I appease slash manipulate the gods? And the answer is through idols, through idolatry. And that by doing these things, then the gods owe me. And recognize how fundamentally different that is from the revelation of Yahweh himself. Who doesn't say, if you like, do these things, then I will do something for you. But actually, and you might think, well, isn't that what a covenant is? Really, a covenant's not that. A covenant is God speaking in the first place. And even reminding them repeatedly, hey, listen, like this is what it means to follow me? True. But it's not, that, it's not that that action that you did is what causes me to love you or appreciate you. 
that God comes to us, first of all, and primarily through grace and through gift. And therefore, that's why Jesus says, don't pray like the pagans do with their many words, these babblers who think that somehow they can control. I'll I'll give you a really fun example. Um, I'm in Africa a little while ago, And while we were there, we were talking, idol worship is a big deal there. So you see them, you see the trees, uh, which are these conduits, these pathways. Um, And so I'm trying to help these pastors kind of understand just some very practical ministry type things. And so there's these, uh, we're we're talking about the the issue of idols. And I picked up this rock and I just said, you know, so this would be an idol and I use this rock to worship God. And I need this rock to worship God. That's what an idol does, right? I need this. So therefore I don't want to lose this. This I need this to get to them to get to him or them. Um, and, and then I began to realize that one of the concerns that they had, and so imagine you're a pastor of six churches uh, that are not close by and you've got to travel and everybody needs the pastor to come and pray with them. Everybody needs the pastor to come and pray with them. And these pastors want to, but it's, they can't. They can't be in all of the places. And I said to these pastors, oh, so you're their idol. True, isn't it? So it's not a rock, it's Jim. Man, if Jim prays for me, right? Like if, if I have the elders come and pray for me, which by the way, the Bible says to do. But if you think it, it's kind of like a way where God goes, well, I wasn't gonna heal him, but the elders asked. Like that changes everything. Anything that we say, I need that in order to worship him, that's idolatry. And it was very obvious, honestly, rampant in this day and age. And we're gonna kind of, I want you to just keep thinking back and thinking in terms of your own life. Like where do I slip into? It's not as simple as I like that more than God. It's, it's much deeper than that. It's where do I find identity? Where do I find meaning? Where do I find purpose? Where do I find peace? Where do I find identity? Those things are really at the core of what idolatry has. And I think we still have to wrestle with those things. But idolatry back in these days were this belief that there are gods that are in the universe and most of them are actually connected uh, locationally. So they would, they would ask, what is the, who is the god in this place? And they had, well, we should, and the Romans were like, collect them, right? The Romans took a lot of the Greek gods. Yeah, sure, add them to us. Like, hey, as we kind of go around, we meet new gods who are the gods of these new places. And Yahweh is <laughs> um, laughing at that. Like you don't have like Yahweh is one more statue. No, there actually are no other gods. Yahweh is the only one. And that is the message that the kings need to hear. So let's jump straight into it and uh, kind of deal with the life of Saul today. Um, Israel in 1 Samuel chapter eight is going to ask for a king. Uh, They come to the judge at the time. His name is Samuel. And they come to Samuel and they basically say, we want a king. And they give a couple of reasons why. Um, First of all, the background behind this request, actually you can read about in Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 through 20, where God actually tells the nation of Israel, you need to set up judges who will never pervert justice and judges who will hold people accountable to to the law. So this is what you need to do, Moses. And we have, you know, as as you try to read through the encounters, we have at least three that appear to do this in Israel's history. The first one being Moses. The second one being Eli. And Eli would actually be the one who is right before Samuel, the prophet, or the judge. 
Okay, sometimes he's called a prophet, sometimes he's called a judge. So Samuel, the representative for God, and so you have these, these ones, and what's interesting is, from Moses, long time to go through, there is this call to set up these judges, and their primary purpose, primary purpose, is to um, help the people make the rulings, uh, in terms of just how they work with life, and the key thing is, and do not pervert justice. Do not pervert justice. Eli's two sons are scoundrels, God kills them. And Samuel's sons, as you see here in 1 Kings, or 1 Samuel chapter 8, they're scoundrels. And the people actually come to Samuel and they say essentially this, your sons are terrible and you're going to die and they are selling justice for their own personal gain. And we don't trust them. And therefore, we want a king to rule over us. The second thing that they try to make very uh, clear in 1 Samuel 8 verse 4 is this, is that we really desire to be like the other nations. We want to be like the other nations. Now, this isn't just as simple as a junior high kid saying, Mom, but everybody's wearing those jeans. It's way more complicated than that. There is a belief or a trust that if we had a king that would take care of, if we had um, someone who would provide particularly these two things, protection and then some kind of provision or some kind of prosperity. That's what kings are able to provide, okay? And, and I think you would almost intuitively know this, right? What the government provides for us is a system by which we can do business and a system by which we can do business by being safe. That's why peace is one of the best things for business, right? So even when Rome comes along in the time of Jesus, the two things they promise Number one, the Pax Romana, or the peace of Rome. We will keep the streets safe. We will keep the bandits away as best as we can. And therefore, commerce will thrive. And when you even read the book of Revelation, it's really interesting. The two things that Rome provides that God comes after is a false sense of peace and a false sense of provision. No, because we are to find our peace and provision not from the gods and not from government, but from Yahweh God. And so these people, which are kind of being scattered throughout the nation of Israel, come to Samuel and say, we want to be like the other nations. Your sons are really, really bad. Therefore, we want a king. Now, it's also good for you to realize that in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God has already given like, a, uh, like some previous instruction about this. And I don't have time to go into it right now. Um, but in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20, God actually says, and when the time comes and you ask for a king, he says this way back here in the time of Moses, hundreds of years before Samuel. When you ask for a king, this is the kind of king that I want you to have, and that's where I gave the instructions as to what a king is supposed to do. The king will be decided by me. The king will actually not trust in wealth. The king will not trust in his army. The king will not make alliances or allegiances to other nations. The king will not, he will not do these things. That's what I do not want to have happen. So there is within the Deuteronomic law, the Deuteronomic code, a provision that this is going to happen. One of the things that I like about that is I love the fact that God in his sovereignty at times says to us, this comes with that yay kind of, right? God sometimes gives us what we ask for even when it's not best for us. Because he's got like a bigger plan in which he's going to redeem it. And that's what we actually see here. So when you ask for a king, this is what I'm gonna give you, this is what it's going to look like. And then in the end, God promises to ultimately redeem it. 
and we, we know who that is. That's through Jesus Christ. So Saul essentially becomes the first king. God picks Saul. God says to Samuel in 1 Samuel 10, um, there's gonna be the guy that's going to come to you tomorrow and he's going to be the king. I want him to be the king. Um, Saul, when he is described, and this is going to be somewhat intriguing when we look at um, David, but when Saul is described, he is about a head taller than everybody else. He has this, this strong stature. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, not from the tribe of Judah. And when Saul is actually just on this expedition to find his dad's donkeys, he stumbles across Samuel. Samuel goes, oh, by the way, yeah, no, God told me you were coming. You're going to be the next king or the first king. And Saul's like, he pulls the Jeremiah, uh, Moses thing. Oh, but I really don't deserve this. I really don't deserve this. I'm from a tiny little tribe. I really don't have the education. I got like a degree in political science, and so I don't know how to manage this, you know. Um, and so he is afraid to take this on, but God says, no, you're actually going to do this. And so there you have the first king. And what you actually see, kind of one of his first actions found in 1 Samuel 11, after he's anointed, um, after he's anointed king, and this is pretty common, by the way, in this era, um, he's anointed king and not everybody goes, yay. There are some people, some, uh, what, what is the word? Like some wicked men from the town or some wicked men from the city. It's kind of got an interesting phrase. Um, they're not happy about it. And so there is a little bit of unrest in terms of who, why is Saul get to be king? And the first battle that we actually see is with the Ammonites. And Saul routes them. And everybody now all of a sudden goes, oh yeah, no, yeah. I, oh no, I voted for him too. I'm, he's the greatest king we've ever had. Love him, love him, love him, love him. And the, what, I, what I love about this aspect of Saul, because Saul is a complicated figure in, in, uh, in Israel's history, is that when that happens, the people say, hey, remember all those guys that didn't vote for you? I still have their names. Let's round them up and kill them. And Saul says, in this moment of victory, we're not doing that today. Like, we're not spoiling what God has done. And so he, in essence, like, forgives them. And so you really see a rather, like, a very noble and powerful king who you kind of, you know, if you're, if you're reading through it, like, you know the story probably, but if you're just kind of reading through it, you're like, I like this guy. He's actually pretty noble. He's making some good decisions. I bet you this is going to, in essence, work out, but that's uh, short-lived, okay? Another thing that he does, which is going to come up kind of later on, uh, is, and, and this happens actually in a number of different places throughout the Old Testament, is that you will have, and you need to remember, uh, the majority of the places, even during the Canaanite time when Joshua came in and was taking it over, they were more like city-states. They weren't like nations with big national boundaries. They were more like a city-state. Um, and even we did, a, we did a, a podcast recently talking about the conquest. And a lot of these cities that Israel took over, were, the fortified cities, were usually where the armies were. But most of the people just lived in the countryside, right? Like most of the people didn't live under the protection of the walls in the city. So most likely Jericho was predominantly like where the armies lived that would have actually taken care of an area around Jericho where the, the, the rest of the people kind of lived in the surrounding countryside, okay? So that's kind of the dynamic. So you really can't think like, even though they might call them nations, it's not like the great nation of Canada versus the great nation of the United States, okay? It's not, it's not near, nearly that clear. It's more like uh, Tulsa versus Oklahoma City and then the surrounding areas uh, that, that, that are around it. But there are a group of people in Jabesh Gilead, which is a city, 
um, and a king opposes them and basically is about to make them his subjects. And he, they, they basically say, hey, we want you to do this terrible thing to yourselves, and if you do this, then we won't totally kill you, but it's really a plan to kill them. And Jabesh Gilead appeals to Saul and says, will you come and rescue us? And Saul says, I sure will. And he rounds up some guys, and they go and they rescue the men of Jabesh Gilead. And so there's a number of really cool stories, and that story's gonna be kind of a fun one here in a moment in terms of how Saul's life ends. But Saul's life is marked by three serious failures. The first one, his first act of disobedience, I'm gonna call Saul's improvisation. Saul is actually um, expected, I don't know how much he is commanded, but he's expected to trust Samuel in the giving of uh, the sacrifices. And, and, And this is a really good lesson that you're going to see. So the Philistines are the adversaries, and so their armies are there, and you almost have to realize, like, this is, a, this is like, serious, okay? Uh, it's easy for us to go, why didn't he just trust God? Have any of you ever been afraid? If I just walked up and said, well, why don't you just trust God? Would you go, oh, I forgot about him, right? No, you go, well, but I do trust God, kind of, but I'm still really afraid, Right? So imagine there's an army across the street. And Saul is waiting, and Samuel, he's waiting for Samuel to come, and he's late. And so what Saul decides to do is, uh, I'm just going to offer the sacrifice myself. And it's that presumption that gets him into serious trouble. And so by the time Samuel appears and he sees Saul doing this, and, and the text actually says, and right at that moment. So it's almost like this, you know, couldn't you have just waited a few more minutes, Saul? But Samuel sees him and says, why have you done this? And he condemns him for doing it. Because of that, here's here's what is promised. Samuel actually says to him at this moment, um, God would have given you like that Davidic dynasty, but because you have not trusted in him and you have improvised in your own way, it will be taken from you. And what's interesting is whenever Saul is told this, his answer is, blessed be the name of the Lord. He has kind of a a humble responsiveness to Samuel when he does this. But here is when he is the first time, so 1 Samuel 13 is the first time that we actually see the promise that you're going to die and your descendants are not going to be future kings. For that, God is serious about sin. Like I know you and I, we laugh at it, Um, we kind of think it's cute, we excuse it in the people that we love and in ourselves. It seems to be really, 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 like really serious to God. Like it's so serious that his son had to come and die for us. And we sometimes just kind of, we wonder why God's making a big deal out of it. Like maybe he knows how serious it is and how dangerous it is. But God in his perfect, righteous decision-making process basically tells them you're going to lose. Uh, And what's interesting is is that the Philistines end up being defeated, but Saul's not the victor. It's actually Jonathan, his son, who gains the victory. The next thing we see, a second act of disobedience, is is Saul's presumption. He is told there was a king that was not good to the nation of Israel when they were coming from Egypt. And God said, I, I'm gonna, not going to do anything right now, but you're going to pay for this later on. And so God sends Saul to go and to punish the Amalekites, King Agag and the Amalekites. And he says, they are devoted, the phrase that keep reappearing in that text, they are devoted to destruction and I don't want you to get in my way. So I want you to go, Saul, and I want you to destroy the Amalekites for their sin. 
And Saul gets there, and basically what Saul does is he, he makes a presumptuous, or kind of makes a presumptuous uh, decision, which is this. I'm going to destroy everything that I don't personally see a need for, but if I see a need for it, I'm going to actually take it. So he gets rid of everything that doesn't really have any value or worth, but the king he keeps because he can kind of show everybody how great he is by dragging a king around by the nose, okay? And the oxen and the, the livestock that have value or worth, he lets the men keep those. And in walks Saul. And Samuel, Saul, or in walks Samuel. And Saul's first response is, hey, I've done everything you've asked, Dad. And do you remember what Samuel's response is? Then why do I hear this bleating of sheep? What is this bleating that rings in my ears? Well, I did, I did kind of everything that God asked, except when I got in the middle of it, I realized that God had made a couple of mistakes in what he had said. And so I decided that I should really improvise here, and I, I made some minor adjustments and changes. And Samuel takes a sword and kills the king in front of him and basically says, because of this, it's your, your, the kingdom is going to be ripped from you. So he, he, he really recognizes, and this is where you get the great statement that I absolutely love, is that God, oh, it's not mine, God deeply desires that we obey him more than we have anything else before him. Obedience is what he desires. He desires obedience. And it's a, it's a good kind of a reminder for us um, because uh, I, I, by the way, I, I, I like improvising sometimes and I can be rather presumptuous. In the text it says, it warns against being presumptuous in terms of how God tells us to do things. Um, this story actually going back to how we can, uh, I don't wanna have a moral of the story, but how it can actually matter to us are those times in which we say, yeah, I know like God believes this about marriage, but the real truth is, is that like I've learned so much lately in this university class about how people really are. Or I know that God really says this about how I should raise my kids, but the real truth is, is that I really think that it's, it's amazing how much I, I won't speak for you, how I, I'm brilliant. Like I am, I am just brilliant. And I, like, no one knows my kids better than me, not even God. And no one knows my situation better than me, not even God. And nobody knows my circumstances better than me, not even God. And when we do that, right, like, we all do that, we're wrong. And it's costly, and it cost David something absolutely huge. The third act of, and by the way, it's right after that. That's in 15. 16, David is anointed. We'll come back to that next week. 16, David is anointed. 17, Goliath is killed. So it's at this moment that Saul is still king, and now David is anointed future king. So when David kills Goliath, he's, metaphorically speaking, still has the oil dripping from his own anointing to be a future king. I don't know if you knew that. We just kind of said David killed Goliath. But he killed Goliath as an already anointed but not coronated king of Israel. Most of what David does, actually, all of what David does in terms of the story is after his anointing as uh, king of Israel. Um, the last one is kind of right at the very end of Saul's life um, and it is Samuel dies 
and he is about to face the Philistines again, and he has already gotten rid of all the witches, all the uh, enchanters in the land, and he finally says, I need to find this one enchanter, and he finds this witch at the city Endor, and he says to the witch, I want you to call up for me, Samuel, and the witch, it's funny, the witch like freaks out, because I don't think she'd ever actually really done it before, and God, in his provision, sends Samuel, and Samuel appears, and the witch freaks out, and Saul and Samuel have this conversation, why have you called me here? And he said, because nobody will answer me, like God won't answer me. Well, you know why God won't answer you? Because you do things your own way. So God's not gonna answer you. And then he says to him, and by the way, by this time tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me in the land of the dead. And Samuel leaves. And Saul goes off into battle. Um, the last thing that I wanna talk about is Saul's death and legacy. Um, the Philistines come, they kill him, they kill his three sons. Um, Saul uh, sees that his sons are dead and the, the, uh, the archers hit him and he's not about to die. Uh, and so he's afraid that the Philistines are going to come to him. So he says to his armor bearer, run me through. And the armor bearer says, I can't do it. I just can't do it. And so then Saul says, okay. And he falls on his own sword and kills himself. And then the armor bearer, and when he sees this, falls on his own sword. And the text gets very explicit. And so Saul's three sons and Saul and his armor bearer, as well as a good number of Israelites, died that day. The Philistines come and they grab him. Throw that up, Ryan. The Philistines come. Do you guys know I'm going to Israel in May? Uh, really excited about this. this. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and especially when I come back next week, you'll see the part that I love the most. It's David's response to Saul's death. I love how David deals with it. But when I walked upon this site, um, I mean, it, it truly was one of my favorite uh, memories. Uh, this is a Roman city that was actually not there during the time of David or Saul, okay? So the Romans, where you'll kind of see this area on the bottom part, the Roman city they built there, but the mound on the other side is actually a, a tell. T-E-L-L, and a tell is uh, where a city once was. And so they would build their cities upon um, kind of mounds, and then they would build and build and build. And so you, as, you, as you would excavate that, you would just keep going through these different layers and you would see it. So get in closer again, Ryan. So there is the, the mound, and the, the, it looks like a cross. That's from... Is it Godspell or some kind of, there was a thing that was done back in the 70s and that's still, is it, is it Godspell? Jesus Christ Superstar. Jesus Christ Superstar. And that's, that's actually still, <laughs> but that's actually like from that, is it a movie? Yeah, that's from that movie that they put there and it's, it's you've heard it's a movie. Um, and that's, so that's actually where that is, okay? But that tell is the wall where Jonathan and his brothers and Saul's bodies hung right there. And so I didn't get a chance. Next time I go back, I'd, I'd like to take a walk up there. Um, I have no idea why. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible, uh, especially the next part of it when David comes upon them. Um, remember I told you about the men of Jabesh Gilead? So the Philistines uh, kind of like uh, deface them and hang them there in shame and some valiant men from Jabesh Gilead travel through the night and they go to that place and they take their bodies down and they burn them. And that is the end of Saul. 
So some amazing, amazing things happen. Um, I'd like to say he's all bad. He's really not. God uses them in many ways. There are a number of lessons, I guess, that I could say that we could definitely learn. Um, next week when we come back, we're going to be talking a little bit about some of the key events that, are, that happen in Saul's reign. Um, it's very interesting, though, for us to, as we kind of look at um, how all of this starts, it begins with a group of people that say, hey, we want a king, and God, um, in his perfect knowledge of how wrong this decision is, says, I can redeem this. And we see in Saul a king who is sometimes good and then mostly bad in this, and not doing what God says. See, so often we look at circumstances in our life and the bad things are like really, really bad things, like killing people, you know, getting drunk. But like in Saul's life, the part that is just so um, on the verge of unforgivable is just disobedience, just being presumptuous, just, just feeling like, yeah, I know what God said, but you know what, I got a better idea. If there's a lesson that we can learn from Saul is that when God says something, he really does mean it. And it's really not up for us to decide or to, to change. It's for us to do, to follow. So the first king doesn't start out very good. The better news is it gets better and then it gets really, really bad. That is King Saul. Let me pray. God, uh, we love you and we thank you for being the true king, for being the true one who is in charge of all of this. God, um, there are lots of lessons that we can learn. The deepest one is this, that you have a plan for us that you gave very clearly to Abraham that came true in Jesus and we find hope in him, the true king. That God, we also learn that you mean what you say. And you are unbelievably patient and unbelievably forgiving. And you mean what you say. So therefore, God, I pray that we would have a deep appreciation for your word. And for the joy of being obedient. And Father, may we um, not just take you seriously. But what we mean really is that we would take you at your word and trust you. Free us. Father, by your spirit, free us for from the, the sin and the dangers of presumptuous improvisation. May we trust you with the very core of our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we can do this. Amen. Love you guys. See you Sunday.